and uh, it's going to be in Second Kings chapter 18, and we're going to be talking about Hezekiah, uh, and um, we're wrapping up our series on the House of David. We've got a couple weeks left of, of that, and then we're going to move into uh, into our Advent season. Um, but um, we have been exploring these various kings and talking about God moving through this particular kingdom. And so this morning we want to open in a word of prayer and then we're going to get right into uh, 2 Kings chapter 18. Father, we once again come to you. We have sung and prayed and received the elements uh, of the Lord's table. We have um, connected with one another and fellowshiped. And now we come to hear your word. To reflect upon this record of your redemption and power. In one place in the world with so many things going on. And Lord, help us to draw from your word what we need to live in your world. That we might be the hands and feet of Christ. The body of of Christ bringing the gospel and, and speaking the truth in a world that's not always ready to hear it. We pray that you would be glorified in this part of our worship this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the Holy Spirit, to you, God our Father. Amen. Is there any chance, Bob, we can bring the lights down just a little bit? They are blinding me. Um, if This one in particular is like really bright in my face. I'm not sure why, but it's like staring into the sun. Oh, look, there's your faces. It's so nice to see all of you. Um, anyways, Second uh, Kings chapter 18, we're going to be talking about Hezekiah. Um, while you're turning there, if you've been with us, we've been going through, we started with David and we've kind of worked our way, um, kind of just pulling vignettes from the history of the, the ancient kingdom of Judah, which existed from about 1000 BC until about 600 BC, so about 400 years. Uh, Hezekiah um, is probably... Uh, from a historical point of view, not from a Bible point of view, from a historical point of view, Hezekiah is probably the most important king of Judah. And the reason is because Hezekiah is the first king of this little kingdom that gets plastered all over the history of the day. Um, Hezekiah appears in what's called the Taylor Prism. Um, It's in the British Museum. And in that Assyrian monument... Um, Hezekiah is the villain. Now we are so used to, in our Western world, we are so used to reading the Bible and reading about all these people as heroes, it never occurs to us that to everybody else they might have been troublemaking rebels. Um, So first of all, I love Hezekiah because he's a troublemaking rebel. Um, But uh, we're going to look at this guy, and just to give you a context, this is about um, the year 7. 25 BC, so about 1700 years ago um, that these events occurred. And 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1 In the third year of Hoshea, the son of Ella, king of Israel, the northern king, 
Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Avi. Now, I love the fact that his mother's name, by the way, is my father. That's what Avi means in Hebrew. Um, The daughter of Zechariah, somebody's mom really didn't like them. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places, he broke the pillars, he cut down the Asherah, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and it was called Nehushtan. Um, The word for bronze and the word for snake in Hebrew are the same. Um, Nehush. Um, And so there's a a play on on words there. In verse 5, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. And in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. That's the northern capital, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, So this is around 722 BC. So we've moved forward a couple years. And at the end... Of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria, put them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. Now I'm not going to get into the whole detail, read the whole passage, but this is what happened. Um, In the reign of Hezekiah, the great Assyrians, the Assyrians were the superpower of their day, had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and in the years before Hezekiah became king, his father Ahaz had become a vassal of the Assyrians. Um, Historically, we actually have records, believe it or not, uh, Renap 3.11 if you really care, Um, but we actually have records of the tribute that the king of Judah was sending to the Assyrians to keep the Assyrians out of their kingdom. And Ahaz, uh, Hezekiah's father, had made an alliance with the Assyrians to prevent an invasion from the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Aram, what today we call Syria, in Judah probably involved in that alliance was young Hezekiah, who was at the time just uh, 16 years old, taken to Assyria and probably married to an Assyrian princess. So Hezekiah grows up in an environment where Assyria, the easiest thing to do in life is to just appease the Assyrians. Now, There's good reason to appease the Syrians. They are brutal, nasty people. 
Um, I've talked about this before, but just to give you an idea, one of the ways that they would humble the nobility of a kingdom when they conquered them was they would lead them off into captivity by taking a steel fish hook about the size of your hand and punching it through the side of the cheek of the aristocrats and chaining those fish hooks together. And you would travel chained like that because the great Assyrians had caught a great fish. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but this is an interesting point. Do you know what nation Jonah, who got swallowed by the great fish, was called to preach to? Ah, there's a little, little work going on there. You can think about that and do your homework. Um, anyways, so... Um, the Assyrians are worth being afraid of. They are a frightening group of people. So frightening that Ahaz had an, an altar to the Assyrian gods constructed in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I, I'm not going to get into all of the, the politics and stuff like that, but along comes this 25-year-old king. His father dies. His father has made a very favorable alliance with a very powerful neighbor. He has, uh, Ahaz has brought peace by making peace with the nastiest, most terrible people in the world. Israel, the northern kingdom, keeps fighting Assyria, and as a result, Israel eventually will cease to exist. Their aristocrats will be led away with the fish hooks. The people will eventually scatter. Um, they're known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Um, we don't know where they all went to. So it makes good sense that what Hezekiah should have done as king was continue the practice of appeasing the Assyrians. Keep the altar in the temple, keep the money flowing, keep the Assyrians happy, and you will live a long and happy and wonderful life, married to your Assyrian queen, having little half-Assyrian babies. By the way, his successor, Manasseh, if you do the math, Hezekiah rules for 29 years, his successor who should be his firstborn son, is only 12 years old when he succeeds Hezekiah, which means he's not Hezekiah's first kid. Hezekiah must have gotten rid of his Assyrian uh, family uh, and the politics of all that. But anyway, in Hezekiah's 14th year, the Assyrian king Sennacherib sends the Rav Shaka, which is a, a government representative, to besiege the city of Jerusalem. Now he has a very good reason for this. Hezekiah has rebelled. One of the first things that Hezekiah did when he rebelled, apparently, was go to all the other people that the Assyrians had fought and conquered and said, hey, just so you know, I'm going to rebel. If you'd like to, you can join me in the rebellion. And they all kind of looked at Hezekiah and went, cool, we'll join him. They throw out all the Assyrian rulers, and one of the Assyrian rulers uh, of one of the cities in Gaza, um, actually Hezekiah takes him captive, takes him to Jerusalem, and that's the reason given by the Assyrians that they go to the to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem to take back this guy and put him back in charge. And they besiege the city of Jerusalem. 
They surround the city of Jerusalem. They demand a tremendous tribute from Hezekiah. He pays them off the first time and then proceeds to rebuild his kingdom to forge a water supply for Jerusalem, to gather resources. He uses his brain. He says, if we're going to break free of Assyria, the only way we do it is if we're smart about this. They build basically a city fortress, and the prophet Isaiah becomes involved in all kinds of things. Um, And I'm not going to get into it, but at the end, there's this siege. They send Hezekiah a letter, say, give up. Come and just become part of the Syrians. He refuses to. God sends an angel of death, wipes out the Assyrian armies. All right? I know I'm burying the lead, but you can go back and read that part. Um, according to the book of Chronicles, Hezekiah reopens the temple. He observes the Passover for the first time in probably 50 years. Hezekiah even, Chronicles even records that like David toward the end of his life, Hezekiah actually falls into sin. He's confronted by the prophets. He repents and is restored. So just like David, he's not a perfect king, but he's a king who is trying his best to serve God. Then he dies. His 12-year-old son Manasseh becomes king. Manasseh rules for over 50 years. And he is the most evil king Judah ever has. He is violent, idolatrous, murderous. The rivers, according to tradition, the streets of Jerusalem flow with the blood of the prophets of God under Manasseh. How could, first of all, how could such a good king... Hezekiah come from such a loser king, his father Ahaz. But second, how could such a horrible king like Manasseh be born to such a good king, Hezekiah? I have a very simple big idea for you. First of all, you need to hear this if you haven't heard it before. You are not defined by where you come from and who your parents are. Hezekiah is not defined by his father Ahaz, his mother who's named my father. He is not defined by the practices that had brought comfort to the kingdom, Hezekiah chose on his own to define his kingdom, his reign, his personal life, the safety of his family. He chose to define that by faith to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He chose to define himself not by what was easy and what was comfortable, What was the default setting for somebody like him, but rather by what was right? Now, how many of you have ever read, we're getting into the Advent, and you read in the book of Micah, right? It says, um, oh, Bethlehem Ephrata, right? We read Micah 5.2. I'm going to turn over there so I can read it for you. And you can turn over if you want. 
Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. You've probably heard this verse. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until this time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God." When we read that verse, because we have the New Testament, we read that verse and we see Jesus. Because in the Gospels, Jesus is, it's applied to Jesus. Guess who Micah was talking about in that verse? Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king like David. Where did David come from? Bethlehem Ephrathah. Hezekiah was the savior of a kingdom in idolatry. Micah prophesied during the reign of Hezekiah's father. Hezekiah chose to be faithful to what God had called him to do when it wasn't easy, when it wasn't comfortable, because he would not be defined by those who came from him, those where, where he came from, came from or who his parents were. But so did his son. Manasseh also chose not to define himself by where he came from and who his parents were. Manasseh used his personal choice, his personal volition. And we're not going to talk about him, but you can read about him. Um, you can read about him beginning in 2 Kings chapter 21. Um, you can get all the grisly details about Manasseh. All you need to know is that Hezekiah is called a king, like more righteous than anyone else, like David, better than anyone before him or after him. And Manasseh is called the most wicked king to ever rule. But he also chose. He chose not to be defined by his father's faith. He chose not to live according to the standards and, and risks that Hezekiah lived according to. What's the point? What's the big idea? You must choose. Young people that are gathered here, you must choose. Maybe you grew up in church Mom and dad did their thing for you. Or maybe you've never been to church. Or maybe the church you've been to, you never want to go back to. Maybe you're somewhere in between. But it is your choice to make, not theirs. Adults, always, maybe you've always had the religious thing in your life. It's easy. It's comfortable. Not risky. Just go to church, throw some money in the offering envelope, do your thing, got baptized when you were a kid, whatever, do the bare minimum. It's good enough. Passes the test. You must choose. Maybe you have already have chosen.
Maybe you're visiting with us, you've been hanging out with us, you've been asking questions, you've been involved. You must choose. The choice cannot be made for you. Well, if I just hang out in church long enough, I'll start to feel spiritual. No, you won't. I hang out with Ryan Damaris all the time. I'm still five foot four. I hang out with Eric Wittenberg and, and Tom Hathcote and all these six foot tall guys. And I keep thinking one day I'm going to wake up. I was going to say be able to play basketball, but I've seen Tom play basketball. So that's not the question. It's true. It's true, right? We're not athletic. No, Tom and I are, we're friends, we're couch friends. That's what we are. We, we watch football, we watch sports together and complain about it. That's what we do. You hang out in church. I mean, Billy Sunday said you can stand in a garage uh, all night long. doesn't make you a car. You can go to church and it doesn't make you a Christian. You can do all the right things. You can read the Bible. You can say the right stuff. But you have to choose. You have to choose. We all choose. My wife's been posting pictures of our daughter. Well, like, emailing a text not posting we have like this group chat with my daughter where where we say stuff and she makes fun of us and um she's been finding you know the facebook memories you get all the little pictures of your kid when they were little and everything i remember i remember holding ariel in the hospital when she was born the first time that we got to hold her and she was in the nicu and there was stuff going on we got to hold her and i remember thinking i hope she chooses well I couldn't make her be a Christian. We couldn't force her into it. We couldn't tell her, you have to, this is your faith, this is all there is to it, don't make any, you, you, you just, she was going to have to choose. I had the privilege of baptizing my daughter upon profession of faith when she was about 10. I've had the privilege of baptizing many of your children, many of you, when you made the choice to follow God. But it's your choice to make. It's your choice to make. Now, you can allow faith to be defined by other people's faith. You can allow your actions to be defined by other people's actions. Or you can choose for yourself. Now listen, moms and dads, grandparents, you need to know this about your kids. They will choose. And you may not like their choice. But it's their choice. Our prayer should be that our children make the right choices, that our spouses make the right choices, that our friends and co-workers make the right choices. As a pastor and as a shepherd, y'all would make my life a lot easier if you would stop making wrong choices. You know, it's like Jesus tells the parable of the shepherd who goes, he has 99 sheep and there's one in the fold and everybody admires him for going to find that one lost sheep. But I guarantee you the entire time he was looking for that dumb sheep, 
He was sitting there going, why can't Bill just do what I tell him to do? All sheep are named Bill. Just like all little girls to me are named Fred. So it's just easier. I got it from Dr. Doolittle, the original one, not not the remakes. Okay. Um, anyway, um, you know, it's Bill. Why is Bill the sheep? Why is he? And, when, and I just picture the shepherd finding Bill wherever Bill was. And looking down at Bill like I do with my dog and go, why? Why are you there? What did you do? And the sheep looks up at him and goes, bad. <laughs> Moms and dads, wouldn't it be easier if your children did not have a free will? If they would just do what you tell them to do every time. Wouldn't it be great if God just decided who was going to be Christians and made them always make the right decisions? Wouldn't that be great? No, it would not be. Because then God would just be a puppet master, pulling the legs and making us move. Instead, he created us with choice. What will you choose Let me close with this statement. We talk a lot about belief in faith, in church, Christianity, religion. We talk a lot about faith. We talk about belief. Let me tell you something. To believe something, you have to choose to believe it. It is not, well, one day the belief will just happen. Nonsense. That's like throwing a bunch of parts into a garage and hoping a Maserati pops out. You must choose to believe. It is your choice to do so. You say, well, God, God will will somehow supernaturally suck me in if he wants me to be. No, he will not. You must choose. You must choose. Hezekiah chose faithfulness. Manasseh chose wickedness. Hezekiah chose God. Manasseh chose idols. But they both chose. How does that work with the sovereignty of God? If I ever figure it out, I'll let you know. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible is full of people making choices. Some good and some bad. And the choices are not other people's responsibility. They are yours. Kids, if you want to be a good Christian, you must choose that path. Moms and dads, if you want to be good parents, you must choose the biblical path. Husbands and wives, if you want to be a good spouse to the other spouse, you must choose to be good to one another. Grandparents, you're automatically fantastic. Don't worry about you. There's no choice to be made. You're all set. That's right. It's not true, Rob. I was using that as a metaphor. I was figurative language. We must choose. What will you choose? The other thing, too, I would say is it's not something you chose, past tense. It is always something we choose. Hezekiah fell into sin, 
at the end of his life. You can read it in First Chronicles uh, or Second Chronicles, chapter 32, about the failures at the end of his life. But when he was confronted by the prophets, he corrected, he repented, and he chose to follow his God. You must choose. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, not all of us here have chosen you. And some of us, most of us, at least at the beginning, chose you for our own reasons. And then grew into the choice and came to know who you were. Father, help us to be patient with one another as we navigate the choice to believe. The choice sometimes to fail in our belief and then to repent. Help us to live with the consequences of our choices, both good and bad. To choose to be faithful to the one who is faithful to us. Father, for those that have not yet chosen, give them the hope, the spiritual power, the intestinal fortitude, whatever it takes to choose you. Though we sometimes stumble and doubt and fear, help us to choose, to choose well to choose your love and loving kindness above all other things, to not define ourselves by others' choices, but by our choices. And may you be glorified as we seek to give glory to your name. We pray this, Jesus, in your precious and holy name. Amen.